Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. I always love to hear stories and uh, reports of what's going on in other places, especially like that. That's, gosh. Laura sends her love, put her on a plane, well, sent her back to the airport last night. She had a six o'clock flight out this morning. So she's still in the air, heading home, and she's good for about 10 days, you know, out somewhere. This was 17 days, so that was extra long for her. We've been in Spain, and and uh, uh, it's good to be with you. You doing okay? Everybody happy? Yeah, yeah, happy. Good, good, good to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have any big preach tonight. I just want to share some things that kind of been running through my brain. Uh, have you ever noticed when you read the Bible that Jesus spoke differently to different groups of people? In other words, when he would speak, for example, to the 5,000, he would speak in parables and in mysteries. But when he spoke to the 12, he would uncover or, or explain the parables and the mysteries. But he didn't do that to the 5,000. So he had a different way of speaking. When the Apostle Paul spoke of himself, he says that, he says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. Later, and he speaks in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter about faith, hope, and love, uh, Paul connects the gift of prophecy to understanding the mysteries of God. Okay, you ever wondered why God does that? I mean, why does God speak in mysteries to us? Why all this cloak and dagger thing? Why? When I say the word mystery, and let's dialogue for a moment. When I say the word mystery, what comes to your mind? You can talk. A lack of clarity. Boy, isn't that good? True. What else? A riddle. Secret. Hmm. The Bible word for mystery actually has two facets to it. Uh, uh, the one I is the idea of hiding or covering of something. Like you put a cloth over something, you're hiding it, you're covering it. So in order for that mystery to become known, you have to uncover it. And that's the very nature of the word revelation. It means to uncover. Okay. But there's another facet to the idea of a mystery, and it's the shutting of the eyes of the one looking to understand the mystery. So in other words, if I'm walking around like this, not only am I going to stumble and fall, but, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to uncover or to know the mystery. Does that make sense to you? So, so for a mystery to be known, two things have to take place. First, the opening of the eyes of the one who's seeking to know the mystery. This, this speaks of perspective. It speaks of how you see. Do you remember when Jesus went and spoke to the, the woman at the well? Then right after that, his disciples came to him and said, hey, you know, you need to get something to eat. And then he gave them the response, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. He made that statement and, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. So he turns to them and he says, lift up your eyes. 
That's the introduction to that. In the context, it's right at the end of that particular statement. So if you're going to understand what I'm saying, in other words, he says you're going to have to change your perspective. You're going to have to, ch- you're going to, have to reposture your perspective. This is something we do. This is part of our part in walking the road between mystery and, and revelation. In, fa- in fact, if there's a title to this little discussion, it's, it's walking the road between mystery and revelation. Secondly, to, to know a mystery, it has to be uncovered. And uh, as I said previously, that's, that's literally the definition of the word revelation. It means to uncover. Most of you know things happen in life we don't understand. You can shake your head this way. In, in fact, sometimes we find ourselves in a position where we're trying to comfort and encourage people who have suffered loss, disappointment, crisis, tragedy. And we always have this resounding question inside of us, why has this happened? We cry out to God. But I find more frequently than not, there's not a lot of answer coming. We don't hear an answer. And I'm gonna suggest to you tonight that this silence is part of the mystery of God. I have an incredibly high value for revelation. You people in this house, uh, you get baptized with revelation on a regular basis. And uh, that's that's an awesome thing. Don't ever ever, uh, uh, underestimate how powerful and what a privilege that is. I have a value for understanding what God is saying in his word for perceiving truth. But I think sometimes we fail to realize the value of the mystery. I'm going to suggest to you mystery is as important as revelation. Because mystery is where trust is proven. Trust is the doorway to faith. Now, when I talk slow and I pause, that's because I want you to think that's really important. The life of trust, the life of faith is more than believing something. Sometimes a life of faith is being able to stand, enduring when you can't explain, when you don't have control. But in the midst of that mystery, you continue to say, Yes, Lord. Can you say that? I'm sorry, that, I, that was really bad. Y- yes, Lord. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you there's no maturity apart from that element of trust where you learn to stand in the midst of a mystery. You don't have an answer, you don't know why. You're not hearing anything from God. You know, in the midst of our desire to be compassionate people, many times in the midst of tragedy, we fight hard to answer the whys. People we love, they're in pain. And over my years, and I'm sure yours too, I've heard some really dumb things said. during times when people are in pain and we're trying to comfort someone 
God just needed another little angel in heaven. <laughs> it's from a good motive. We're trying to console people and our friends are hurting, they're in pain. And, and, and we're trying to help them connect the dots to make sense out of the situation. But sometimes the dots need to remain unconnected. I believe it's very legal to ask God why. But I have personally found that out of the thousands of times I've asked God why, I usually don't get an answer. And sometimes it can lead to make-believe solutions. We're scrambling for answers. Our friends that we love are in pain. And so we're trying to find answers in the midst of a mystery when God isn't speaking. So how do I walk between mystery and revelation? Those are two words that really need to, to, to soak in. I'm going to suggest, give you a third word tonight, and then that's just going to kind of be my little talk here. Uh, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this word. And, it, and it's, I, I believe that one of the greatest obstacles between mystery and revelation is the word familiarity. Familiar, what comes to your mind when I say the word familiarity? Again? Okay. Somebody else. Familiarity. Comfortable? You're familiar with something? Yeah. Literally, familiarity is a quality or a degree of being known. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, of being known and a degree of intimacy. A quality or a degree of being known and a degree of intimacy. Let me give you an idea of how familiarity can be very seductive and covert and how it can rob us in that journey when we're in no man's land or when we're, I shouldn't say no man's land, when we're in between mystery and, and revelation. How many of you have ever heard a message being preached here or somewhere else. And then you've said to yourself, oh, I've heard that before. I know, I know that. And the moment you say that, you kind of turn things off. And your mind goes and wanders and goes to other places. You remember John says in, it says in, in John eight thirty two, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You shall experience the truth, the real evidence that you have ex believed a scripture is not that you've heard it. Real evidence that you've embraced a truth is the resulting liberty and freedom and empowerment and enablement that comes from that. Anything short of that is not really a truth we have believed. So familiarity has both a cognitive part up here in the brain and it has an experiential part. Frequently, we stop short of knowing the truth. We hear and think because we heard it, now we have the revelation. I probably get asked to speak more times in my life on one subject, and the subject is being offended. And I've spoken it here several times than probably any other subject. And I want you to know, at least every other time that I preach that message that I've preached four or 500 times, God shows me something different about it. 
I learned something new. So I'm going to suggest to you that revelation always comes in layers and degrees. And each layer or degree requires a different experience. Requires a different level of intimacy, a different experience with God. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 6, 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But don't you know they speak of me? Jesus says to them, but listen to his next little statement. He says, but you are unwilling to come to me. So revelation is not primarily for information, but it's for transformation. It's designed to provoke a divine encounter to take you to another experience, and in that encounter, we're changed. Are you all okay with that? In fact, revelation without transformation just serves to make you more religious. I want to pull something out of the Word just for a moment to show you the incredible, devastating results of familiarity and how it stops this journey in between mystery and understanding. Mystery and revelation. In John 7, I'll just read to you for a minute and you can just sit back and listen and enjoy. He said, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said, to him, listen, listen to what his brothers say to him. Leave here and go to Judea. <laughs> Where were they seeking to kill him? So that your disciples may also see your works, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So, so make a special note in your head. His brothers grew up with him. He's up to the age of 30. There's no miracles. He's a good brother. There's no healings. There's no multiplying the bread. None of these things had happened. But in this moment, the disciples had been hearing the reports of miracles, but they know in Judea the Jews are desiring to kill him. So the counsel of his brothers is, hey, big brother, go to Judea. I want you to see in this very sarcastic comment that they are, this sarcastic comment that they're making to Jesus because they don't really believe he's who mom said he was. So it is possible as those in Nazareth, it's possible to know Jesus as the carpenter's son, but never know Jesus as the son of God. It's possible to be, so, to be so familiar with Jesus, church people, that you no longer know him as God. Y'all smile at me when I talk. This, this, this helps you. That realm of familiarity has cost the people of God all through history because they did not have a value for what God valued. Here's the story in verse 3. It says, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples may see your works, and so forth. Uh, what's happening? The brothers are accusing Jesus of seeking to want to be famous. They're speaking sarcastically to provoke him. The whole point is, they've lived and walked with the Son of God their entire lives. Jesus is the firstborn, the oldest, 30 years old. 
And up to this point, they have completely missed it. The familiarity of knowing Jesus the wrong way has cost people for centuries. And as a result, we miss out. We stay in mystery. Now, I want, I want to pull out another little passage for you. Luke 4. I'm talking about familiarity and how it operates in between mystery and understanding and how it literally prevents us from experiencing things that God wants us to experience. In Luke 4, about verse 16, it says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. You'll, you'll, you'll know the story. And as was the custom, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, you Remember the context. Israel had been without any prophets for 400 years. Without any manifestations, no prophetic dreams, no thus says the Lord, 400 years, all that absence. It had been the greatest spiritual drought in history. Ten generations of spiritual famine. So in Luke 4, Jesus comes. He's a citizen, small community. Nothing significant there except that Jesus grew up there. It's the Sabbath day. He begins to read the scriptures, opens to Isaiah 61, and begins to read. Now, remember, Jesus is the Word of God, and the Word became flesh, right? Now, watch what happens when the Word of God begins to speak the Word. Remember, he could only speak what he heard the Father saying, do what he saw the Father doing. You all okay with that? Okay. So here's the picture. Something begins to change in the atmosphere and in the room. He says in John 6, my words to you are spirit and life. So the word becomes flesh and the word begins to speak the word. And the moment his word, the word comes out of his mouth, it turns into spirit and totally changes the atmosphere. People begin to look at each other. Notice something's different. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The atmosphere in the room changes because he has anointed me. What a prophetic declaration because actually he's never done these yet, but he's about to. Here's what I want you to see. It says in all of them in verse 22, all of them were speaking well of him, wondering at these grace-filled words that were falling from his lips, words of grace. Context. They had never sensed the presence of God before. They had been in a spiritual drought. And all of a sudden the words became spirit and began to give life. This is the first experience of their lives of something like this. It's the things that you and I have the privilege of experiencing on a daily basis. And it says they all bore witness to him. That means... Something inside of them was shouting. They were saying, amen. Now, that's right, man. What's going on? They're looking at each other. They're getting a connection. They're connecting with him. The words of grace falling. They were stunned. But then something happens that totally changes everything. From the back corner, someone says, but, but, but isn't this Joseph's son? 
And all of a sudden, everything in the, in the room changed. The air goes back out of the room. What's happening? They were exposed to a revelation. But that revelation actually got reduced to a mystery because of the familiar. Isn't this Joseph's son? By the way, this is exactly how the city of Nazareth ended up with the title, the city of unbelief. It wasn't always that true, that way. Verse 24, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. It says it differently over in Mark 6. It says a prophet's not without honor, saved in his own city, his own country, which basically means you can have someone in who can impact and change the world, but they don't have that same impact at home because of familiarity. Thus, we get into all the little statements, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet and all that. But I want to go back to the, to the sermon. Jesus is still continuing in Luke 4. And he has one more, really a two-fold, two-prong illustration. I want to show you what, what familiarity does, and, and then we're going to apply it a little bit. He says in verse 25, I say to you in truth that there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them, because only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel. Here's the second story. In the time of Elisha, the prophet. But none of them were cleansed, only Nahum the Syrian. Now, context again. Jesus is talking about supernatural provision in one, supernatural healing in another. And he's going to illustrate how the grace for those two realms, provision and healing, had been with Israel their whole time. But because of familiarity, they weren't able to connect to it. They had to stay shrouded in mystery. It's interesting. God did not correct them just because of something they did. But God's measure is always not so much on our actions, but on our potential, on our ability. He corrected them because they had a capacity for recognition. Remember, he rebuked the Pharisees once and he said, you can look at the clouds in the sky and you tell it's supposed to rain, but, but you're hypocrites because you can discern the weather, but you can't discern the seasons. He rebuked them because they had a capacity within themselves of discernment. So in this moment, Jesus points to two stories, Elijah the prophet, Elisha the prophet. One was an issue of provision during a time of famine. The other was a healing during a time of sickness. The thing that so strikes me about both of those is that because of familiarity, they stayed shrouded in mystery and weren't able to move into understanding. They weren't able to connect with what God wanted for them. Familiarity means I can be extremely close to the answer. 
but I'm clueless that the answer's there. I can't help but how, wonder how many times we prayed and asked God, God, please do this, please do that. And all the time, and we don't see the answer. And all the time, the answer is right there beside us. But God presents it in a package that we're already familiar with. Oh, no, that, that's just Elijah. That he used to pour, hand, put, pour water on the hands of Elijah. But, you know, we saw him out in the field, and he, was, he had a used car dealership or whatever, and we know him in that capacity. And therefore, that certainly can't be the package God has put my answer in. Provision, healing. So to move from mystery to revelation, I have to change how I look at things. Let me give it to you a little different. I personally believe God has deposited greatness in everybody. Person on the street, person in the church, believer, non-believer, I believe God has deposited greatness in everybody. Now the question is whether or not we're going to look for that greatness or whether we're going to focus on the problems and the weakness of the failures of that person. Just take a moment. Kind of look at the person next to you. Now some of you know each other too well, so this... <laughs> But look at the person next to you. Go ahead, take a look at them and, 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 uh, and just look at them real good. And, you know, and I want you to see some of the greatness God has put within them. Why does God speak in mysteries? Because the nature of revelation is each level of revelation requires a new experience and that experience requires greater intimacy. But when I approach things of God just with this, do I understand it? I've heard it. And I don't allow God to put layer upon layer. Oh, I've heard that. Wait, hear it again. Remember, Peter says, I stir you up by way of reminder. And again. And again. I contend with you that Holy Spirit wants to put layer upon layer. You may have heard of truth 400 times. But if, you, if, if each of those levels of truth have not provoked you to a new encounter with God that's brought about some change in your life. But I'm going to suggest to you, you heard it, but you didn't hear it. Are you all okay with that? One time in, in the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about coming to know one another after the spirit instead of after the flesh. You familiar with that kind of term? And to me, that's absolutely hugely important. 
I used to think the discernment of spirits in Corinthians was being able to tell whether there's a demon in someone or that kind of thing. I don't think so anymore because the word actually says discerning of spiritual, not spirits, spiritual. So when I'm able to see a person the way God sees them, I'm discerning spiritually. I'm able to focus on the greatness that God has deposited in them, the destiny, the purpose, the ability, the potential that God has put within them. They may not be living it, it may not be evident on the outside, but you see the smile and the kindness in their eyes in between their barks and their anger. You still see, you know, God put a really big heart in that. Now you're beginning to discern the spiritual. Y'all okay? This has been wandering around in my heart for the last two days. So I just thought I would kind of launch it out to you. I really believe that there's an important part in the mystery. We have to learn how to stand when things aren't being said and there's quietness and we don't understand and the whys aren't being answered. We still have to learn how to keep our yes on and say, yes, Lord. And that is, to me, one of the greatest demonstrations of faith you'll ever see, even greater than signs and wonders, miracles, healings, deliverances, is to see a person who's able to stand in the midst of such adversity and turmoil and, tra and trauma and keep saying, yes, Lord, don't understand this, don't like it, it hurts, but yes, Lord. But on the other side of that is the beautiful part of Revelation. But Revelation has a responsibility attached to it. It comes in layers. Jesus said, speaks of me, Bible, Scripture speaks of me, but you're unwilling to come to me. Revelation, without a divine encounter, is just adding to religion. But in between those two, familiarity takes us out so many times. And I believe it's things God wants to answer, things God wants to do in us, for us. Just can't help but wonder. How many times we pray? And God says, I, 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 I did answer you. Really? Yeah, yeah I, it was your husband, it was your spouse. I, I sent the answer. Oh, no, it couldn't be them. <laughs> I have two waters, don't I? <laughs> so here's what I thought I might do just, just to kind of end on this one little note to kind of help, help us interrupt familiarity. Honestly, I never see anything that's healthy that comes from, from familiarity. Intimacy, yes. Familiarity, no. And I differ those two words. I want you to look around again at someone beside you, around you, behind you. Get a good look at them. If you're here alone and single, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not embarrassing you too bad. If you're single, this may be your opportunity. <laughs> 
How many of you have a need in your life right now? Come on. The rest of you have a problem with lying. We, we need to talk about that the next time. <laughs> I want you to find someone else in this room. Ask God, God, who? Look around, find someone else in this room and simply ask, go ask them, would you just whisper a prayer for me? You don't have to share any big deal. You don't need to share any big story. Somebody comes to you and, 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 and you're not really used to praying for people. Just say to them or just say, you know, God bless them. God, whatever you put in me that's good, give it to them. God bless them. Really not a difficult kind of prayer. But what I want to get you to do is to begin to look past the external and see the greatness that God has put in someone else and call on that greatness. Recognize that greatness. Step past the familiarity and tap into a realm of honor, respect. Lift up your eyes. Look different. Change your, reposition your viewpoint. See them spiritually. Are y'all okay with that? Okay, go do it. Come on. And if you're here just by yourself, sit back and enjoy and watch the other people and be entertained. <laughs> okay, so... Saying to the guys here, I, uh, I joke with some of my Anglican friends about sharing the peace. You know, it's just, it's just a little fun. Well, we've done that tonight, haven't we? Sharing the peace. <clears throat> I think there's some, um, well, there's a lot of wisdom in what Bob said. And I think, um, I think one of the frustrations in long-term ministry, which, of course, you know, we're talking that I... I've had 26 years in senior leadership here and uh, many years before that, so 30-some 30, 30 years in, in total. And then, of course, I've been in the church since I was six years old, so that's 50, 54 years um, in the one church. And um, um, it can be an issue of familiarity that can make us not appreciate sometimes the full measure of um, of what God is about particularly particularly in seasons like Bob says where where the only requirement is that you stand and having done all you just stand um, but uh, that's okay because because we're we're getting there aren't we and um I think as well on the movement we talked about, you know, we're heading for some change in who we are because it describes who we have become and all this is part of this journey of, uh, of moving on. And, um, you know, there are some classic Bible verses. Chris and I have always throughout life been impacted by the same things. And we, for a couple of years in our experience, when the church was much smaller and way back in Wilton Rise across in Holgate, and um, my father-in-law... Um, 
he knew some stuff, but he didn't, he didn't know how to explain what it was that he knew. He just knew that he knew something and was desperate to. Um, and I think that's why, you know, um, as, as a couple of people, you know, I was an Elisha to my, my father-in-law, why he put us together, because I, uh, um, I think I was probably blessed to be able to interpret some of the things that, that my father-in-law um, saw. And I think, you know, um, we, we have carried that legacy forward. So this, this is built on. And uh, even back then, there was a guy called David Phillips. And uh, David had a tremendous um, revelationary gift in Scripture. But back in those days, um, we didn't understand ministry and ministers and hearts as much as we do now. And there were many things that we've, we've broken out of here. One was, one was um, you know, the, the whole issue of if you are in ministry, you know, forget having anything. Because there, there was a big joke, particularly in Pentecostal circles, which was that, um, Lord, if you'll keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. You know, and between us, we'll make sure he stays on the straight and narrow because he should be humble and poor. So, so, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. And it's a sad indictment that, that a lot of the time the church did keep people poor. I mean, un unrighteousness, not, not, not just because of lack of funds, but just really out of a meanness of, of spirit. And we've broken that, and we, we're very grateful to God that we've been taken care of very well and um, have sought to, to do that with others. But... My father-in-law back then, he, he asked David Phillips, David had had a nervous breakdown and, uh, um, you know, he, he had some brokenness in his life. And, um, but my father-in-law invited him to come and be part of the, the ministry here in, in York when that wasn't done. I mean, you know, Bob's from America, we're from the UK. You, if you were a pastor, you were the pastor. He didn't have any staff. He didn't, you know administrators and associates and all that was that was like what you know it, um, so how we see the church now is a is a progression that you know that is is wonderful but back then my father-in-law saw that that there was something bigger in and saw something beyond the brokenness beyond the and do you know what was being said really, you know, that the gossip was, oh, David's just not up to it, he's just weak, he's a weak man, you know, and look at him, you know, if he really trusted God, he wouldn't have a breakdown. Um, having been in ministry all the time I've been in ministry, I can say that if you don't have a particular constitution, you will finish up crushed, broken, destroyed, you know. Um, and, uh, but my father-in-law recognised that, but he saw, he saw something bigger in David, he saw... Uh, something in his spirit that was that was was greatness and so for two years he he had him come in and we we the church here blessed him a little bit financially and um you know um sadly people put pressure on david and and ultimately he felt he had to go back and take a church because what were you doing you know and uh um, that left him ultimately um in a position where I didn't even know where there was a God, never mind pastor of church. And we tried to minister to David after that, just, just broken because of people doing stupid things and not recognizing what was in him. See, his gift was never to be a local pastor. But in those days, if you, if you had a gift from God, if you were called by God, you, were, you had to be a pastor or nothing, pastor or an evangelist or nothing. 
So dear old David, bless his heart, you know, we, we sought to minister to him. But I said all that, 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 that uh, we were always touched by the same things. And David, I remember David um, one day preaching on Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. And, and he often, you could see revelation dawning on him as he spoke, you know, he's that kind of guy. And I, I, I received a lot from David. And he, he, he hung on that thing of, uh, he would have gone further, but they wouldn't let him. They constrained him, because he was preaching from you know, King James back then. He would have gone further, but they constrained him. Of course, he started to say that actually, um, beyond Emmaus, there really wasn't anything. You know, there was no place to go. There was no literal city or you know, vibrant center of community. It was like you were going into the unknown, um, but it said, but, you know, and Jesus was explaining to them about the revelation of himself and unfolding mystery, um, but their familiarity with the way things were done is they said, oh, let's, you know, we should stop here and rest. And, 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 and he would have taken them further, but they wouldn't let him. And uh, I remember David saying that, and it struck me tonight that, you know, um, one of the things that familiarity does is we could go further, but we don't get any further because there is a constraint that says, well, let's, just, let's just stay here. But he would have gone further, but they wouldn't let him. So I, I think as a house, we've got to make sure we, uh, number one, let God take us further. And I, I also going to be, you know, whatever you think it is, to say we have to let leadership take us further. Those who are you have to let me take you further. You have to let Chris take you further. That we don't constrain it to stop because the truth is God is taking us somewhere and we're on a journey. And um, uh, there's always something that is wonderful and I don't want us to be like the, um, like the guys there that we read who, you know, who just got so angry and all upset and you know, just want to kill the thing because that's not where we're... That's not where we're going to be. We're going to move on. However, uh, it was interesting Bob should bring this because I was talking again in, in Goa on Sunday morning about the season between the seasons, the fifth season. What do you do in the fifth season? The season between the seasons. We know when we're in a clear season, we know it's summer or we know it's winter unless you live in England and this is a pointless illustration because... <laughs> Because, you know, how does one define an English summer or an English winter? But we, we all know the principle. And, um, you know, Chris, Chris laughs at me because I have in-between clothes. And I say to her, you need to get some in-between clothes. And it's for those days where, you know, it, it's, it's neither hot nor cold. It's not sunny nor dull. It's not really raining or dry. And so, you know, it, there's things, if you wear a certain thing, when you leave and you go out, if the sun comes out, you, you're sweating, you're absolutely boiled, you can't bite it. But if the sun goes in, you're chilly and cold, so you've got to have some in-between clothes that just compensate for that. But it's, there's actually wisdom in that, because it teaches us that there are seasons in our life when we're between seasons, and we find those times difficult to deal with, because nothing is absolute. You, you, cannot, you cannot define anything in absolute terms. You have to, you have to understand that there's change, and there's flexibility, and, and um, there's a word I was looking for that, that we've used many times about when you're convinced about something, certitude. 
There is no certitude in the situation. So you, you have to retain, it's the thing Bob said, it's about stand. You have to stand. It's those moments are actually the time when you, your potential for growth and development are greater than at any other, any other time. Certitude, we often, we, we get carried away with it so we don't think there's any need to be anything or do anything or change to become anything. But, but those things shake us out. So when you're between these things that Bob talked about, the, sh the shaking us out of the place of certitude and bringing us into a place of faith where we step out, you know. God said to Abraham, okay, here's the deal. Leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's house. <clears throat> For what reason? Well, go to a place that I will show you. Well, what is it? Well, I'll just tell you the direction you're supposed to go. And so we, we forget even when we read scripture. Scriptures, we read scripture as though, you know, um, Jesus got up on Monday and did that, and he got up on Tuesday and did that, and he got up on Wednesday and did that, and he got up on Thursday and did that. But if you take all the, all the preachers of Jesus that we have recorded and all the miracles and spread them over three and a half years, not three and a half weeks, you realise that, that there is space between all these things where, where stuff's happening. You know, you look at the story of Abraham and think Abraham left his people and he went to where God was showing him. But, but there is decades decades of time in there when he's just walking across who knows where but it's those places where the faith became what the faith needed to be so when you spot on the horizon hey we can see something coming into view what what the writer of hebrews 11 called the city you know looking for a city whose maker and builder was god it's those middle bits that really define us and and that really um call us to be people of trust and people of faith and we believe God and we stand. It's the middle season that says we know it's coming but we're in between and it's about standing fast in that. Now I want to say again speaking to those of you who are part of this house I think, I think we've done a lot of that over the last five to ten years um, and I prophesy to you that we are coming out of that because the city is coming into views maker and builder is God. Um, and, uh, you know, there may be some of you as well that experience that in, in your own life. But don't think because you can't see anything that nothing is happening. You know, don't think because nothing's yet come into view that you're going nowhere. Because any pilgrim that is gripped by that, their familiarity becomes the nothingness there where well, nothing's really happening. You know, I've been praying, I've been looking, I've been... And the familiarity becomes, well, nothing's happened, nothing's ever going to happen, everything just is what it is, therefore just, you know, the gospel of Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be, rather than the gospel of faith that says, I have become familiar with some of this harried desert, however, I believe that just beyond there, just beyond where I can see, just out there over the horizon, so that's why I've, I've said to you that I think one of the greatest sadnesses of the Christian gospel has been destinational theology, which is not good Bible. Destinational theology says, here's the whole point. Um, you're a lost sinner. You need to find Jesus. When you find Jesus and you become born again, you'll go to heaven. It's like, you know, 
when Jesus said, no, the issue is your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. The Bible is not a book of destinational theology. It's a book of directional theology. This is the way, walk in it. Abraham, go to a land I will show you, was not a destination, it was a direction. The point being, if you keep going in the direction, you will reach destinations, right? Not one thing, destinations. You will arrive at places you're supposed to go and then you move on to the next place because it's all about direction. So in all of this, if we can understand that God is pointing us in a direction um, and within that direction, our call is that, that faith and trust and hope blossom. We say the last word's not yet been spoken. You know, God is with us and he's going to love us through all this and into all this. Um, then I think we, we have a chance of making it. So if you want some advice on how to get middle clothes, that I'm pretty good at that. I can help you. <laughs> Hopefully we can also help you about um, what we've learned as well in the middle season between seasons. Um, and yeah, some of this is tough. You know, it, um, you know I, think, I think there's a bubblegum gospel that, you know, just says, oh, well, actually, the... the I use the term bubblegum gospel. I don't know why. Where did that come from? Um, yeah, like Charlie Brown. Um, what I mean by that is that, is that um, mood-altering substances are what people turn to to change how they feel but never changes the circumstance. So, so you can have everything from, from prescription drugs to um, you know, um, illegal drugs, to alcohol, and again, you know, um, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I do have a problem with drunkenness when when we when it's taken because we so want to alter the mood because we can't handle the truth. Um, but I often upset congregations because I say, and um, for, for Christians, praise and worship, prayer can very often become mood-altering substances. We do it to alter our mood, but, but in altering our mood, just like with any addictive thing, it may not actually change who we are. So all of those things, that, I mean, they have a place. You know, thank, you know we, we all need things that alter our mood. But things that alter our mood don't transform our lives. And so, you know, I'm saying this just, just to say how we sit in this matrix of what Bob's talked about, where, where God is looking for a transformation that goes beyond just the altering of the mood. It actually becomes a transformation of the mind and a changing of the heart, which, as I said to the guys on, um, when I talked to the, the sunflower HIV sufferers, I said, here's what the Bible says. Tears may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning that when you understand this principle, it's always in the kingdom of God from darkness to light, from evening to morning. It's always from winter to summer. It's from seed time to harvest. Everything is always moving forward to the place of abundance and the place of blessing. And I think if we can catch that and live in that space and, and even within it, you know, yeah, let's be blessed, let's be helped, let's have some things that lift our spirit but within it be looking for a real transformation so that when we come through, we say God was with us. God really helped us there. You know, all the poetic language of, the, of, of um, 
of the Old Testament that there was a time when we hung our harps on the willow tree. Well, we don't do much of that, but to them it was important, you know, because they said, we can't sing the Lord's song because we're in a strange land. And then the next psalm says, but when the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, you know, so there's a genuine move out of the place of, of, of difficulty and all these challenges that bring us through um, then to something more than just an altering of our mood. It becomes the reality of our life. And then that's the something that remains. It's the something that stays constant. It's the something that strengthens us and helps us move on and be a blessing to our world. So thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. And thank you for being here. Let me just pray for you and bless you. Father, just thank you for every person that's here tonight. I thank you that every one of them is of immeasurable value. I thank you there's not a single one of us in here that you love in spite of who we are. But every one of us in here you love because of who we are. It's true love. It's real love. And you may, in spite of what we've done, may come into the equation, but you don't love us in spite of who we are. You love us because of who we are. So thank you for that great love. Thank you that because of that, we have the intimacy of your heart towards us that in walking through all this stuff, um, you're bringing us to somewhere. You're bringing us to something. You're changing us from glory to glory, from faith to faith. And so as we receive this and just thank you for it, we thank you for even the greatness in Bob that's still to emerge, still to come out, still to be seen, still to, to flow. And, and we bless that and release it and acknowledge it and speak it by words of the Spirit. And for everyone in here, Father, those walking through some tremendously difficult journeys um, right now, I thank you that tears may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I thank you that beyond the desert is a land of promise. And so we set our hearts upon you and thank you that you said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll always be with you. So bring us through in, in all of this transition of these places Bob's talked about. Bring us through to where we can shout it from the mountaintops that God was with us and we made it and it was good. And, uh, and we are blessed. So we, we thank you, Lord, for, for your word. Let it, let it rest in our hearts and still do more now as it germinates and and producers, as we just live in your fullness, in Jesus' name. Amen. There you go. There you go. So we bless you, and uh, Bob will be with us again on Saturday night. So uh, we look forward to seeing you, and, uh, you know, be safe. Okay, we're done. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.